Had enough of the been there, done that ideas? Tired of too much talk and so little action? Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to Transformation and Change Radio on our new day and time, Wednesday. I believe it's the same time, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I could not be more excited to have an encore conversation with Diana Noriega. Thank you so much. You come as Assistant Executive Director of Anti-Racism and Equity. I have to say, I'm not sure I've heard anybody with that kind of title. I wish every organization had something like that at the Good Shepherd Services. And what I so appreciate about our first conversation in October is we just started talking about just transformational ways you're using a race equity lens to transform, really revise onboarding, hiring, retention practices, eventually promotion and putting into accountability structures. We got about halfway through your 12-step hiring practice. And so thank you so much for being to come back. But really, as I was looking again, I don't know when you sleep because you're also the New York City School Diversity Advisory Group you've been a part of. Historically, the Committee for Hispanic Children and Families, Big Brothers, Big Sisters in Higher Education. You really do come with a wealth of incredible backgrounds of many different kinds of organizations. And so excited that you said yes, particularly in this time of just post-election and resurgence of pandemic to say, thank you. I wanted to thank you for coming back to share your wisdom and strategies. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I'm excited to be here. So as everyone listening probably needs a deep breath, how are you doing? How are us, however you define family, community in this time of early December, 2020, how are you doing these days? Yeah, I will say that just from my collective community, there was a big sigh of relief post the election results. I think some initial anxiety in the days, but then Saturday when uh, an announcement was made, folks felt like a deep sense of thank you. Um, And while I think everyone knows the work isn't done, uh, that we, but it feels like we needed that moment to recharge and pause. So it, it, it has been like a collective, like, ah, okay, we get a little bit of a moment to, to like be grateful. Yeah. So I think that's the same space that I'm in. It's just kind of gratitude for the moment of, of pause. As I hear you, a fear I have is if too many changes towards racial justice, social justice, or just the hope with the new administration things will, that too many white folks, leaders within organizations, as well as senior leaders all the way down, 
we'll go, we're done. And so we don't have to do any more racial reckoning. We're done. BIPOC folk, all right, it's your job again. So I, I don't know if in all your network, you're beginning to hear that or see it, or you still see particularly white leaders, managers and above still very committed to dismantling racism, creating racial justice. That's a good question. Um, I don't know that folks think it's over. I think so much happened this year that folks recognize this is a long-term commitment. Uh, and I would say even like through my consulting work or Good Shepherd's work, there's been like ongoing awareness and conversation of, oh, we have so much to undo. We have so much to undo. And I think folks are still trying to figure out, well, where do I start? At what point in the process? So what I'm hoping though, too, is that uh, philanthropy also doesn't lose momentum uh, in this conversation because folks also need funding to kind of execute on this work as well. So a gentle nudge to listeners, as you're coming into a season where you may be investing some of your resources time, looking for people of color, indigenous led anti-racist organizations who are really doing the work that often our formal organizations are resisting and not doing. And the person at the top may not be a person of color now that I think about your organization, but the organization itself is doing great anti-racist disruptive work. Yeah, and it's a journey too, even for us. I think we've been on it for four years intentionally and still there's a lot of work that we have to do. But one of the things that gives me hope and what you're saying is for the first time I've seen, and I've only been at Good Shepherds now for a, a year and a half or a year and eight months, a year and eight months, is um, the fact that people are using white dominant language and culture in meeting spaces and not freaking out about the term even white supremacy culture. It's kind of, which says that the culture is shifting, that it's more open to kind of being critical of itself. So that is a really good sign to me that we're even, uh, I've had more challenging dialogue than I ever have, even alone. And I've, I have challenging dialogue on a regular basis. So for me to say that that's a lot, but it, it's been received differently. So that's good, makes me feel hopeful. So these benchmarks of, especially in the executive team and the next layer down, starting to use language like we need to dismantle racism. We have a dominant culture here grounded in white culture. The language white supremacy culture, some listeners, you've heard it before if you hang out on the show and if you find yourself bumping into it, just think about the dominant culture that has one way of doing things um, that actually, if you read the Kenneth Jones, Tema Oaken's work on white supremacy culture. You can again find it on my website, drkathyray.com backslash resources. Lots of work materials there to do white accountability spaces. And when an organization can say, yes, there are practices and policies, ways we engage, how people have to dress, speak, show up, do conflict. So why don't we use that to transition? Because that some of those unwritten rules that are just built into policies and practices, yes. your 12-step process is really, as I'm coming to understand it, is really amplifying and making very visible how the traditional way of doing hiring in general, much less at Good Shepherd, has actually supported whites getting hired or maybe 
BIPOC folk, Black, Indigenous, other folks of color who fit in and don't speak out and don't rock the boat. That may not be true of Good Shepherds, but I see that at most every organization. Oh, we'll put one here, we'll hire one. There's so yeah. many mind for folks that either don't remember since October or haven't listened to it, highlight the first several steps. And then yeah. there are some that we can kind of start to dig into that were some we may, may not have gotten to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also want to stress for folks that it's a pilot process. So we are constantly revamping. And right now, actually, starting in January, there'll be a revamped version of the process to make sure that we're accounting for, for learning, learning that we've had over the past. Uh, now we've done it for a year. So that's just to name that. Um, so steps. The first step is, is just as a reminder, you create a hiring committee. Uh, and the hiring committee works on the job description. And, and that also is done in partnership with the hiring manager to also elevate and name that the hiring manager is not always involved in the hiring committee. And that's intentional because there's a power differential. So if a hiring manager has a lot of influence, we don't know how that will actually play out in the hiring, even a committee process. Uh, so what we're trying to do is level the playing field. So that's kind of the very early stages. So this hiring committee works on a JD. That JD is then organized by core competencies. So again, even if the hiring manager is not involved in the committee, they're involved in this because they know what skills they need for someone to have when, when they're looking for someone to hire. So that becomes important. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So some of those core competencies are job specific. At this point, you said you're infusing kind of competencies around dismantling racism, creating a racially inclusive climate culture. Yes. Could you share some of those that actually will probably be in most every job description? I love the hiring yeah. lingo of JD. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I guess I should say on a, on a new track right now, what we've done is we've created agency-wide, but particularly for our community-based programs, um, competencies for folks. That's something that we've been doing kind of, I guess you can say some of this is parallel tracks, right? Um, so one of those is cultural humility. Those are now gonna be required of everyone across Good Shepherd Services. But again, we're starting with our community-based programs only because we uh, had to design some competencies to support our layoff process which uh, has been very much centered and focused on how do we retain the most versatile talent, but using competencies that we want folks to have across programs. So cultural humility is one particular bucket within that kind of framework. Uh, for leaders, we also have visionary kind of skills. What does that look like? Change management. We also, because our mission statement uh, was changed last November to be guided by racial and social justice, we, uh, make sure all children, youth, and families succeed and thrive, we have a mission and vision competency. Uh, and so essentially, we are expecting that folks are aligned to our mission and visions. Uh, and that because, again, we are explicitly naming racial and social justice in our mission, it makes it a little easier to kind of add a bit more race equity language in that particular core competency bucket. For us, just to give an example, is a very pragmatic one is, do you talk about social justice in your team meetings and in supervision with your staff? Are you creating processes and services and experiences 
that ensure equity exists within your uh, program area or division for senior leaders? Um, and then are you managing for racial, gender, and microaggressions? Uh, another kind of way we define mission and vision alignment is are you holding yourself and others accountable to that mission and vision? And later on, kind of when we get to uh, cultural humility, which connects, but we, we kind of separate out because cultural humility is the process of self-awareness, learning about oneself as much as it is about um, learning about other folks and making sure that you're giving other folks the space to share how they want to be seen and um, supported. But we also added to that, right, um, kind of a more explicit language around uh, has a growth mindset, um, really is participating and engaging in professional development on how to become an anti-racist leader. That's an explicit kind of bullet under that core competency. Uh, can in something kind of can demonstrate an understanding of white dominant culture norms and ensures that their programs are not reenacting them. So that's also another clear kind of bullet that we have under uh, cultural humility. And, and again, a few more and embedded throughout even all of the other kind of pieces are other anti-racist kind of principles. So in our communication bucket, we have a principle of shares information with all key stakeholders uh, and shares information in bi-directional kind of ways. So you're sharing it up and then you're sharing it down. So throughout even core competencies where folks normally probably wouldn't think that you can fold in an equity principle, we are folding in equity principles and guidelines. And again, these will translate to competencies that will be required of all senior leaders eventually. Right now we're focused on our community-based. So you're modeling, it's actually a culture change. You're saying this is yes. who we are, this is where we will be. Whoever we're hiring now, we're gonna bring in people with great, possibly greater competence and demonstrated alignment than we have now. Yes. I guess as you're training the current folks to get greater alignment, those competencies sound wonderful to my yes. ears. Um, have, how have your senior, again, you may not wanna answer some of my intrusive questions. How have your senior leaders, or if you wanna answer it, how other senior leaders in other organizations might react to this level of specificity around racial and social justice, because some of them are not currently measuring up theoretically. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we also understand that there's a learning curve that has to happen for some folks because we've never held them accountable to these standards. Uh, the other thing to name is, is that these particular core competencies that we've developed right now Again, uh, the one thing I would undo or re like is not combine them with a layoff process. That was a bit challenging to be truthful, um, but we involved division directors in that conversation. So we actually sat down and hosted two meetings with our senior leaders and said, hey, here's what we're gonna do. We really want your feedback on what you think is important and valuable to add to this conversation. We will add explicit anti-racist and equity language to that but we want you to kind of chime in as well. Approaching it from that lens made it better able to be received. Um, now we're gonna circle back around to them to share kind of the full kind of final product and to say, hey, here's, we, but in all, we had probably over 45 people provide feedback in those core competencies. And that also included a subcommittee of our equity council 
which includes frontline staff as well as senior leaders. So they looked at it with a very particular uh, participant and mission-centered lens. Um, so again, we got a lot of diverse voices to participate in that process. I share all that to say that we're in the process of continuing buy-in, but a big part of that was to make sure that it was collaborative. Um, and we'll continue to do that before we roll it out more expansively. Now the rollout expansively, if you're doing this really well, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but connected, it's another part of the work, uh, is, is it is uh, making sure that it's included in evaluations, but it's also how are you then training and supporting staff mm -hmm. to kind of develop into these leaders. So our leadership development team is creating training and learning op opportunities for staff to learn what does it mean to be a level six uh, anti-racist multicultural organization leader? Uh, how do you do coaching with an anti-racist DEI lens? What does that look like? So we're creating kind of a suite of learning opportunities to cultivate that, that skill set for staff to grow into. Another training that we, you know, last year is DEI uh, supervision with a DEI lens, which very much focused on cultural humility as a supervisor and what you bring to the table. And let's have some conversations about that and how your power and positionality might be received uh, and perceived by folks who don't occupy the same levels of identity and power. Uh, so that is kind of, again, creating this portfolio of support to make sure staff can kind of handle it. And then eventually, again, it'll become a three, a part of a 360 tool that we actually give to uh, staff that report to them and to their colleagues as well. So it's gonna lead into a, what I call a massive shift, cultural sh organizational shift around uh, leadership development in general. Listeners are having to breathe because all of this is so exciting and you've been there just a little over a year and a half. That is significant movement in a year and a half, in my opinion, as I've watched. I, I appreciate that because sometimes people feel like I'm not moving fast enough. <laughs> so. And my guess is listeners are relating, especially folks who are in your role of equity inclusion leader, anti-racist leader. It's never fast enough. And to have that much systemic culture change, collaborative work, with a plan of what else we're doing. Um, and you haven't hit major resistance yet, theoretically. Theoretically, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's been some resistance. I, I mean, I think genuinely uh, what I tell folks is if you're probably not doing this work well if you're not getting some level of resistance, uh, truthfully, because it is about making people uncomfortable with what they think the norm is. Um, so yeah, I think that's my, my shout out to anyone who leads DEI anti-racist work. I'm sending you so much love because it can be very exhausting. So <laughs> exhausting. Um, I love that you're looping these competencies back again. And my guess is you're asking in general, much less every hiring committee. So how will we know that these competencies, how do we look at the resumes, the cover letter, the references, the portfolio that people send ahead? How, you know, how do you have people practice noticing the level of competency demonstration in paper? Yeah, yeah, I think that part we haven't gotten as far yet. So the, the so 
HR though, I think I mentioned this last time, they have been required to attend intro to equity trainings. So that way if they can get comfortable just with even what does this work mean on a macro scale to be able to translate that into a micro kind of level. Uh, I also meet the HR director and I work very closely together. There's no way you could do this work without being in partnership with HR. Um, neither one of us report to each other. So that creates another level of like accountability uh, to each other and, and to the organization. But it is, it is a valuable partnership and there, yeah, you just couldn't do it any other way. And the assistant director of HR and I meet regularly as well to make sure that we're going through processes in a way that makes sense. Um, yeah, so I share all that to say that I think um, to make sure that you're doing it well and assessing it, even from the resume perspective, the, the, the hiring manager is involved, but also the HR has a representative, a recruiter that pretty much takes on this particular job. And that becomes your partner. The recruiter is involved in every phase of the conversation so they understand what they're looking for on a resume. And again, recruiters are also participating in training so that they can better understand the work from a macro and micro level. So that is super helpful because essentially what you're telling the recruiter is, here's what I need you to look for in a pragmatic way in this process. Uh, eventually, we will get more formal and there'll be more training for recruiters and hiring managers. So something that we're actually working on right now is designing a training for hiring managers and recruiters to be able to say, here's how we want you to execute on this process. Uh, so we're getting there, but right now it's just been largely conversational and them being involved in every step of the process to be able to say, I know how I'm looking for administrative skills. I know how I'm looking for fundraising skills. And we may have to talk again when more of these are in place because the discretionary points or choice points, you may have used that term earlier last time, those hiring recruiters, HR recruiters sound like a significant place to invest, build yes. relationships, deepen their capacity, as well as a process to monitor so that they have capacity and are showing up demonstrating it. Um, if not, I would think some members might defer to the HR person. And in my experience, sometimes HR has been set up to maintain the status quo. Yes. And I, again, I don't want you to talk about Good Shepherd in specifics unless they're different from that. Um, but many, you've been in higher ed, many HR. So how, how do you have HR not set up to maintain the status quo, protect the organization, but learn to protect it by we're transforming into an anti-racist organization, a social justice organization? Yeah, I think, I think you're right to say that that's how folks receive it and perceive it. And I have encountered that in many places. Um, I think at Good Shepherds, what has been interesting is again, this partnership with the HR director. Uh, also, I go back to it's why your equity in per person needs to report to the top. Uh, because if, if I were to encounter an issue with HR, which again, I'm fortunate, uh, the HR director and I have a really great relationship um, I could then go though to the executive director and vice versa, she could do the same as well. Um, but without having that direct link to the, the person with the most power, 
it becomes uh, really challenging. I could see, and I know this from colleagues in the sector, really challenging to kind of challenge HR on some of the things they're doing without that kind of a structure. Um, again, we've been really fortunate, but in knowing folks, when your HR person also isn't trained up in this work, it can be super hard to get them to move beyond what they know um, because people function in comfort. And so if my comfort is, is uh, you know, I'm gonna go with my gut on hiring or, you know, I'm gonna just reach out to my network, then that's what you're gonna then produce and process. So my guess is you have much more clear we talked about last time, very clear guidelines for how do you reach out? You have the competencies, you've got your search committee, you're training them, working with HR, yeah. and then your marketing. You said you went out to affinity spaces within different related industries, fields. Um, On LinkedIn too. I think people don't use LinkedIn as well as they could, but we, we do use LinkedIn recruiter. Uh, not to promote them, but I think we also know that a lot of folks go to LinkedIn to, to look for jobs. So it, it is a really good platform to recruit from and to start building relationships with affinity spaces on there. And there's, there's so many, there are so many on LinkedIn. So our HR recruiter team is building those relationships on a regular basis to say, hey, we have these jobs, we're doing all this work, can we talk to you? We would love to make sure that folks from your network are tapping in, so. I love it and my hope is there's a monitoring system to make sure all of them are doing that and coming back and sharing so that um, it's not just a great idea and please go do it, but somebody's holding them accountable to make sure they're doing that so that we really have a full rich potential of a pools. Yes, our assistant direct, I can't remember Alex's title, um, assistant director of, I think, recruitment, <laughs> to be wrong, or talent, uh, he oversees a lot of that work. And so even when, uh, let's say we're doing a hiring process, he actually keeps a dashboard of where folks are coming from referral-wise, whether it's like a, a colleague, LinkedIn, or Indeed, uh, and what you what we are starting to see are there are trends. There are trends on where we're even attracting candidates from. So tell me I'm wrong. At some point, we'll look at that dashboard and go, huh, who are we getting? Level of capacity, competencies. What are the different racialized immigrant identities, first language capacities? And where else could we be looking that maybe we haven't tapped? So it's a. Yeah, I think we need band. to get to that point. I think that's a good point that we're not, we haven't done that yet, but we do look at it particularly when we're in a hiring process. So um, for each process, once they pre-screen everyone on the phone, they, the, the recruiter comes back to the committee with demographics on all of the candidates that have made it past the phone screening point. Um, and they have to, we don't collect, uh, information on certain pieces of data. So we, we collect on racial demographics, uh, gender identity, which is optional. All of this is optional, so folks can opt in or out. Um, those are maybe the two main things that we collect uh, data on only because of, you know, we're trying to respect what people are willing to share and want to share. Uh, but we also tell folks that we are committed to becoming an anti-racist multicultural organization. 
So we want you, like we want diverse candidates who are committed to that as well to apply. So we're hoping that that increases the number of folks that actually opt in and tell us what their racial identity and gender identity are. I love it. And 30 seconds before the break, can you just tell people how to find you? Yeah. Uh, oh, me particularly. Um, folks can check out the Good Shepherd Services website, goodshepherds.org. S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-S uh, -E -E dot org. Um, and then we are building out a web page soon. So folks will have more access to what we've been doing. Uh, and, and Diana as a person, uh, I, I would say email me at Good Shepherds. Uh, that might be challenging right now just because my inbox is a little full. So, so I would say, um, reaching out even through our general kind of info on the Good Shepherds website, I get that information. Perfect. As well. We will be back after a short break for even more specific transformational strategies. And I think you all are taking lots of notes. I'm Dr. Kathy Robert. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Welcome back to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, and I'm just so excited. We'll never have enough time. Diana Noriega from Good Shepherds. You are doing such great sharing of real transformational, how do you change hiring practices so we don't keep hiring the same type of folk, but we really hire folk with the competencies, capacities to serve who we need to serve and the demographics of those we serve, which are high level goals for every organization that I'm working with these days. And most folks then go, I don't know how to do it. So thank you for being here to share some of your pilot strategies of how you're doing it. Do you mind sharing a few more steps in the process? Yeah, absolutely. So once we make it past the phone screening, uh, the phone screening results are then shared with the hiring committee. And again, sometimes the hiring manager is not in that process. Sometimes the hiring committee includes uh, colleagues uh, and then staff that would be reporting to this person. So we're giving staff, frontline staff, a bit more power, which is kind of nice. Um, and then the, the HR recruiter. Uh, the hiring, the HR recruiter, what they then do, they redact names, addresses, and schools from the resumes that go to the hiring committee. So we're removing kind of identifying information that has been shown through research to increase bias, particularly demonstrate implicit bias and process. So the hiring uh, committee receives redacted resumes. They also receive a data, a demographic data snapshot uh, to see if they did get to 50% qualified candidates of color. Um, uh, so that's kind of also happening. So they're getting a stack of data. They're also getting the notes from the phone screening for each candidate that got moved on to the resume review process with the hiring committee. 
So then the hiring committee takes all of this information and essentially they're looking at it like candidate A, candidate B, candidate C, here's what candidate A said on the phone, here's what candidate B said on the phone, and et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying, okay, based on all of this, the resume, the phone screening feedback, here's who we want to invite back for an interview. That invitation is only extended to folks that the group collectively agrees to. So essentially we will ask the group, the hiring committee to vote. Who are your top three to four candidates? Uh, we also invite the voice of dissent in that decision-making process. So if folks feel like, well, you didn't, like there's a candidate I feel really strongly about, let's consider them. We would reopen the vote and kind of have dialogue about that. Folks on the committee could say, you know what, maybe we can add a fifth person to the in-person interview process because we feel so strongly about a fifth person. So the number of people you invite back in for in-person interviews is really up to the committee. So the committee might move because we're always looking at a potential 50% reduction rate through every step of the process. So if the committee starts with 100 resumes, uh, I mean, the, high, the, the job starts with 100 resumes submitted, the uh, recruiter is narrowing that down potentially to 50. The recruiter might phone uh, resume, right? They might even phone screen all 50. That would be a lot. Sometimes they narrow it down even more based on the rubric they've created for resumes uh, to review. But they're eliminating essentially anyone who's not qualified um, or anyone who didn't meet the, meet the resume review benchmarks, which again are based on core competencies. Then they're phone screening. Then the committee gets all of these resumes and then they're narrowing it down by another 50%. So there have been times because we've had so many resumes in the review process where the committee ends up in, and they really like a lot of candidates, they might end up interviewing eight people in person. So it's really dependent on the committee. So while all of this is going on, I would say kind of on a parallel track, um, the committee is also creating interview questions and a rubric uh, for them to use for the in-person interview question process. So while they've provided phone screening interview questions, now they're thinking about in-person interview questions. They ask every candidate the same question in that process because it's important that we're, we're demonstrating fairness. Uh, one of, and that's actually been a challenge for our staff. I'll name that transparently. Anyone who's been involved in this process has struggled with not being able to ask additional questions. So we're trying to right now in our review of this process, think about how do we create room so folks can ask some additional questions. Um, but then the in-person interview happens. You have this rubric essentially where we're talking about uh, their kind of layers to the answers. The person didn't answer the question, which happens. I'm sure people have experienced that. The person answered the question uh, and then our, our like top level, which is not, it's not a really big range, is the person answered the question and provided more detail. Yeah, so that's kind of um, an examples. Uh, you know, so we kind of have a, a, a scale to that rubric. Uh, and then at the end of the interview process for all of the folks, we, at the end of each interview, we rate every single candidate based on the answers to their questions. Um, again, to try to keep it a bit more rational and contained. 
Uh, and then the committee comes together and deliberates on each of the candidates and says, I, I rank this person a four or I rank this person a five. And there's a dialogue about uh, why did you give them a four? Why did you give them a five? And uh, naturally what you start to find though is once you start to, and I've seen this happen organically in some ways, once people understand the process and know what they're looking for, on average, then most folks will land in a similar kind of space around the candidates. What we're also doing in the process of discussing the ratings for each candidate is we're actually managing for bias in that moment as well. So folks get to talk about, oh, I, I didn't realize this, but I probably have some bias around this. Um, and so the dialogue that happens after the interviews have taken place is an equally valuable learning tool for all of the staff who participate in the interview process. Uh, sometimes I find that can be a stronger learning process for folks. Uh, and then that means they'll carry it over, hopefully into the next process. At this moment, can I ask a question about some of yeah. those unintended, unwritten rules about what professional is, what a good leader is, not only dress, look, style, which is where that dominant culture comes in if folks are yeah. listening. Um, in your experience, what have you noticed that committees, white and folk of color, mm -hmm. might have learned the same messages about what is exceptional leadership because there's internalized racism. So what are you noticing about some of those unwritten rules about the culture and climate of what good is that you start to see and how you all are thinking about trying to balance for that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's come up a lot, actually, in, in multiple different kinds of ways, microaggressions. Um, definitely the issue of like scent, you know, has came up once and like perfume. Uh, which, you know, oh, that perfume. And we, we know, again, like that can trigger synapses in someone's mind and judgment can come with that, whether they know Never it or not. It. Yeah, and so just being conscious of like, that's a bias, right? Like you, that's your, your, your process with that smell has nothing to do with that person. Um, that has definitely shown up in space. Age has shown up in space. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we did these focus groups with folks, with candidates who participated in this pilot process over the past year uh, and with panel and folks who participated in the interviewing side. And it was interesting because we mixed the groups up. We said we want candidates in the same room as we want folks who did the interviewing. And we had all of our HR recruiters in the room as well so they could get the, the learning too from the feedback. And one candidate had shared, which was really valuable, um, they didn't like that their age was highlighted and they felt very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable with someone uh, saying, you're so young, how do you have that much experience? You know, th those kinds of things that we think are innate and like are, are we react to are, are problematic. They're problematic. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like on the bias side of it. Th then like expectations around leadership you know, I think this is an age old one. I'm sure you hear this all the time too, Kathy. Uh, particularly with folks of color, you're so articulate or, or folks whose lang second language is English. That's also something that can come up. You're so articulate. Um, 
expectations for leaders that I think a lot of us, I'm trying to think where we fall. I think perfectionism is a big one, even in like resume review and expecting the grammar to always be like 100% on, on target. And uh, sometimes that feels like an unfair expectation. Someone had one typo, like, you know, I think we, I've heard this come up time and time again, people see that as a reflection. You know, I'm not saying someone shouldn't get it proofread, but but I think we're being a little hard if someone says, makes a mistake here or there, you know. Um, but it is one that I see folks of color and, and white folks internalize a lot, is perfectionism. And I see it disproportionately addressed, indigenous, other people of color, high standard for how you have to show up, white person with a typo of two is overlooked because there's a better emotional fit. Again, right. that's if you're predominantly white. Ah, you are in New York City, so these may not pick, but I'm finding people are talking more about um, extroverted introvert and how people wear their hair, what dress they wear. Yeah. It has a race, gender, gender identity cut to it. Um, that again, we don't have to go too deep in this, but the idea of hiring committees getting trained and what are these or a whole list of 50 common microaggressions and illegal questions and comments that we don't wanna, you're collecting them up. But my guess is through HR, they might have something like that through SHRM, but that it, getting that into the trainings, yeah, I'm sure mm -hmm. you're doing, especially from your focus groups of these are some that hmm, have happened here and we really need to avoid them. Um, yeah, and we're actually going to use some of the focus group stories to be able to elevate, like, these are not hypotheticals, like, these are real things that colleagues have shared, internal candidates have said were uncomfortable or problematic for them to hear, uh, not to pass judgment or because I think that's another thing, defensiveness, we come up against it a lot uh, when trying to provide critical feedback for growth. It, it's not always received well, but sometimes I'm, it's hard because if we can't name the tangible ways in which you've created harm, you're always gonna see it as something outside of yourself. Um, so I understand not waiting to give feedback too long after, and at the same time, because that, that can feel counterproductive. And at the same time, I'm like, what else can we reference, you know, if this is something that feels really present for folks? Uh, and that you've actually done. And some HR folks, this kind of training is implicit bias. It seems sometimes online and very quick as opposed to, now let's look at 10 different scenarios that could happen as we're discussing who we're gonna invite to be the final three candidates. And what could we do if any of these occur? So they really practice intervening on each other or redirecting. Because tell me I'm wrong, a candidate, one of your top candidates see a microaggression, particularly a racist one that happens on the committee and nobody intervenes. That might be enough for them to say, I have three other offers, I'm not coming here. Oh yeah, for sure. I, th I think to your point, because we, um, we have like, so, so our culture, I think for internal candidates is that doesn't happen as often because they're so invested in the Good Shepherd's culture. And we do have a very strong like culture at the agency. Um, but for external folks, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Uh, I think even for me, I'll just use my, the, at this point in my career, you know, I have tattoos. Um, 
but beautiful. Lots. But I think there was a point when I would interview and I would hide them because I didn't know how folks would respond to my tattoos. And I think, uh, or even when I was younger, well into my early 20s, I would straighten my hair because it, it, if I wanted to be seen as responsible uh, and adult, you know, like and professional, it was like, how do I fit into the white dominant norm? And I'm already light-skinned, right? So I think that I already become more palatable for folks because of my, the, my complexion. Um, but even then that wasn't enough. I was like, okay, I have to tone it down. I wouldn't wear ho hoops. I'd wear like little studs. Um, I wouldn't wear any like outrageous jewelry. And I remember getting trained and, and developed in that way. Like, this is how you show up for an interview. And it wasn't until, um, I, honestly, this last job, Good Shepherds, where I think, I didn't do that for my previous job, but I think at Good Shepherds, I said, I'm not, I'm showing you my tattoos. I'm coming like as I am. I'm going to have my hoops. I'm going to have my hair curly. Like, you're going to get the Diana who will show up in the role. Um, but that took a long time to develop that courage. I could be wrong, but I'm seeing more younger folk now. Most folks are younger than me these days, 20s, 30s, especially since George Floyd's murder and this time of racial reckoning, I'm hearing more BIPOC folks say, I'm showing up like me, take me or leave me. So yes. how do we prepare a system yeah. for folks who are coming in, Gen Z, Gen whatever's next, to say, this is who I am, see through whatever your biases are. You don't want me challenging behavior, it's too bad. If you want me, this is who I am. Um, which raises the question for me, I love all these strategies and some folks are checking off, yeah, we do these, but how do you ensure that every manager is doing it? Every hiring practice actually adheres. And my guess is this is you know, aspirational right now because y'all are still building but a monitoring and then accountability structure so that an individual hiring manager has to work within this structure and can't go rogue. Yeah, I think the first step is, that, so we're piloting, we're redesigning the process actually in the next two to three weeks uh, to enhance it. And then we're gonna create a training that we're gonna launch in January for all hiring managers that will be required at some point for hiring managers. We're gonna do the pilot, the soft launch, uh, and then it's going to be required. Similar to our intro to equity training that we did about a month and a half ago, uh, that was our pilot, a, th a three-day intensive. It's now required across the agency. Um, so we're, 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 you know, we give people the opportunity to step in, you know, while it's still like we're still learning, uh, but then we switch gears. So that's kind of one thing. So if you're a hiring manager, you're going to have to attend. The, the second part to this is that we do all of our recruitment through a system. We use particularly iSIMS at Good Shepherd Services. I know other folks use other systems, um, but iSIMS allows us to see the, the racial and gender demographic data for all of our hiring managers in the system. So what we're gonna start off doing is a, a pull, an audit, a random audit to see what the demographics are for candidates who make it past the qualified point and then for who you hire. Uh, so we say random audit at first, but that will eventually to your point evolve um, where we'll get a bit more the requirements for that report will, will increase. So the other thing I should mention back in January of, of 2020 now, I feel like this year feels like many years in one year. 
we did create an HR accountability report that included staff uh, related uh, performance data for senior leaders, including uh, retention, promotion, uh, DEI and employee relations issues. So this, this, the hiring piece will also become a part of it. I love it. And again, you have all these systems, but if the supervisors aren't enforcing them with the people they supervise, um, as you know. So that, so what happens if the final four people that are getting brought in are three white and one person of color? The folks say, these are our top four, that's all we want. They don't necessarily know the demographics, but the HR recruiter might. Oh yeah, yeah. I think the, the way we have the process set up now, uh, the first line of contact, the 50% qualified candidates of color, if you don't even have that, then that's already a red flag. There's no way you would end up with, with three qualified white folks and only one person of color. Like that has drastically, that level of an indicator has already shifted. Okay what we're seeing around candidates. The, the second level that has shifted too, honestly, is, is are the race equity questions. Um, so I, to name that if someone had that data, it would raise red flags uh, because we've created at this point in, in the, four to, the five processes where we've piloted this to a full extent and we've piloted it in smaller ways across the agency for other folks. But the, the five that we've done the full kind of Thing, four out of the five led to candidates of color, right? So for me, it would feel really hard if you didn't get there. So this is why we're looking at the random audit to start. But again, eventually that's gonna be a little more than random. It'll be a bit more structured. And I think uh, what we're doing for the HR accountability report, the goal is to produce that report twice a year, only because it's so much data that we include in that report. Um, that to do it more than that would just not be uh, manageable. And we also do that only for our most senior leaders in the agency. So for us, that's division directors and assistant executive directors and above. Um, we'll, we're gonna be adding the hiring kind of piece to that process. So a division director would then be responsible for their program directors as well. Um, and if folks are beginning to feel overwhelmed just keep breathing, but these are the kind of structural changes and accountability that I believe and I join you to have to be in place based on competency and oversight or white folks and maybe some people of color that are parting, wanting the status quo can just move around all sorts of things. It's like, I want this candidate, I know them and can find ways. Um, and the key part is the competency. So are there ways that you are doing, besides the interview questions, you know, mm -hmm. development, I mean, behavioral ones, how have you done this? How have you done that? Are there any other ways you ask candidates to demonstrate their social justice and racial justice competencies, either in a portfolio, if they're the top 25, or they're the top eight that get an interview in the organization, how they get to do something live? Yeah, so, so actually sometimes we do require a writing sample, it depends on the job, uh, or sometimes we require a presentation, uh, depends on the job. Our expectation, our hope is that if someone is presenting and we're talking about mission and vision alignment since we've changed our mission, that you're actually gonna talk about racial and social justice. 
So you are getting, again, that rubric that we have directly connects to our competencies, which for us is now very much aligned to racial and social justice. Um, while we're defining what that looks like in a pragmatic way now, um, there's already been groundwork for that, for the committees to kind of engage with. And again, that, that, that and I mentioned this last time, but that actually becomes the moment where we see folks weave themselves out of the job interview process. When we're talking about, have you done any, and we ask this question explicitly, what is your experience with racial and social justice? Can you share how you've implemented something connected to this? And folks can't answer it. And what did you learn? Well, if you can't answer it, then that's telling. You can't yeah. answer it. You can't do it live when you're here. We talked offline around promotion. Yeah. How do you envision similar practices? And we just have about two minutes left to promotions because so many organizations still have a lot of folk that are status quo folks. How do you get more competent people necessarily moving up? What are your, what are your dreams about? Oh yeah, well, yeah, I'll give you dreams. So I think for me, the dream is that we're using the core competencies and performance evaluations, which then become 360 tools uh, that are all, so you're getting not only like, like your self-feedback, your super, your front, your staff who report you and your colleagues. Uh, and that 360 tool way, should weigh more heavily in promotion processes. Mm. Um, the problem is folks don't invest in 360 processes. I think if we did, we would be learning a lot more about what is our supervisor's real strength and weakness, because oftentimes we're not hearing from the people who they who report to them. We're often just hearing from the top, which of course you're gonna have a very different perception of that person because they might not share with you the day-to-day. -day. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping- I wish, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, I'm hoping they become the pathway. That's my dream in my head is that if your, your 360 doesn't look good, that you are not up for a promotion. And senior leaders saying, these are the competencies that we are working towards for everyone. They'll be in the promotional practices. So start developing them now. So it's a career development. Diane, I thought one more would be enough. Maybe, you know, who knows this next year, maybe there'll be more opportunity if you have the time to share what else you're learning this process. Diana Noriega, thank you so much. How can people find you? Uh, yes, so, so I, you know what? I, I, my Twitter is Diana Noriega underscore co because I know people do social media and I've been getting that request more. Uh, my Instagram, Diana Noriega.nyc and then goodshepherds.org uh, is a way to also kind of, if you email info, um, the general kind of page, I will also find out about it that way. I am so grateful for the incredible transformational work you're doing and your willingness to come and share when it's not perfect, when you're in process. So notice everyone listening, this is dismantling dominant culture by trying it, doing it, keep going, get people involved, significant culture change. Thank you, Diana, so much for coming. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I'll be back January 6th, Wednesday, with another version of... Transformation Change Radio. I wish people deep rest and rejuvenation over these December holidays.
You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.